You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. On Worldview this week, victories by Donald Trump across the southern United States and in New England in the Super Tuesday primaries have virtually assured him the delegate strength to secure the Republican nomination. The Super Tuesday primaries see over 878 delegates up for grabs in the Democratic race and Republican candidates can win about half of the 1,200 delegates that they need. And as the Irish political establishment scrambles to put together a government majority in a hung doyle, they will take little comfort from Spain's still unresolved similar dilemma in the wake of their general election in December. And Brexit again, we're looking at what attitudes to the EU and leaving it in Britain and Scotland say about their sense of identity and the idea of multiple identities. Is the difference between Scotland and the rest of the UK perhaps to do with the fact they are willing to describe themselves as Scottish and European? I'm Patrick Smith. Worldview is an Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our global network of correspondents. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. I'm joined by our Washington correspondent, uh, Simon Carswell. Um, Simon, did did uh, Ted Cruz do enough uh, in the Super Tuesday races to still state the claim as the person who can uh, beat Trump and, and the only one who can beat Trump? I think it's a yes and a no answer uh, in the sense that he won his home state of Texas, which he's expected to win. And he also won the neighboring state of Oklahoma, which was up in the air. There was a feeling that perhaps Marco Rubio, the Florida senator, might win that. But Cruz got that as well. But as I say, it's a neighboring state. Uh, But it does certainly uh, keep him in the race. Um, But does he have uh, the, the firepower? Does he have the support? outside his conservative base and evangelical base to win some of the other states uh, remains to be seen. Trump has done very well, as these results have shown, across the South. He has shown that he has a very, very broad appeal Mm. amongst uh, moderate Republicans as well as amongst conservative Republicans, amongst Southern uh, Republicans uh, um, and both country club Republicans, if you want to call them that, and also Uh, blue-collar Republicans. So Trump has really shown on Super Tuesday with some of these results just how broad a support base he has. In the contest, if you like, for the second place between uh, Cruz and Rubio, uh, Cruz was beating Rubio hands down most of the the way, wasn't he? He was. And and the thing is, is that each of the candidates can take something away from this. Marco Rubio needed a win from Super Tuesday to have any prospect of moving on because he was very much he's he's all about getting to his home state of Florida on March 15th and he got his win it came very late it's not the most significant state in that he was appealing to suburban republicans around some of the big cities and he appealed to those around Minneapolis um, and St Paul the twin cities in Minnesota which he won so each of the candidates can come away with, uh, each of the top three candidates, I should should say, can come away with saying, well, we have something from this to keep them in the race. The story, as you say, of the night is Trump, uh, whose win in Massachusetts, for example, underlines an extraordinary reach into the more moderate and secular electorate in the Republican camp. Um, that appeal right across the party seems to be assuring him now. We, can we say pretty categorically that he's unbeatable? I wouldn't say he's unbeatable because there's still a number of big states to come up. Uh, for example, Florida, as I mentioned, for example, Ohio, which is also on March 15th. And there's another candidate still in the race, John Kasich. Um, the top 
the other top two candidates, Cruz and Rubio, would be keen for him to drop out because it would obviously benefit them. Now, Cruz would like all of the other candidates to drop out with the exception of Trump, Trump so he can coalesce the Republicans around him as this viable alternative so that he can go head to head with Trump for the Republican nomination. But Kasich is still in there. Kasich believes that he has a good chance of winning Ohio. He believes he can win uh, Michigan, which is March 8th. And that, that on the back of that, he'll get a bit of momentum going into Ohio, which is a winner-takes-all uh, state. But if those candidates, if uh, John Kasich doesn't win his home state of Ohio, and if Rubio doesn't win his home state of Florida, I think it'll become clear whether or not Donald Trump is unstoppable. And if Trump, win both, Trump wins both those states, I think he will be unstoppable. Yes, I mean, the reality is that he, he has picked up, I think, a total of 220 uh, delegates so far from the from the 600-plus uh, that he needs. Delegates were, were allocated on a proportional basis, so even winning states doesn't, doesn't give you an unassailable uh, advantage. It, but it's looking all right as if he will have a clear majority, probably, for the, for the convention. It's looking like that's the way it will go, certainly, if, if he manages to take uh, Florida and Ohio, it'll put him in the driving seat. He's in the order of about 170, 180 ahead of Ted Cruz as it stands now. And if he streaks ahead on March 8th and March 15th, um, certainly that could be a lead that's unassailable. The candidates just will not be able to catch him. We, we've seen in the last few days the beginnings of a party establishment um, moves against uh, uh, Trump, but it, it does seem like too little too late. It does. And I think uh, this will be the big story of this year um, when they look back on it in November, that they underestimated Trump last year. They wrote him off. They um, lampooned him. They made him out to be a bit of a joke candidate, a celebrity candidate uh, that they really didn't see as any kind of threat. And he's shown uh, through this anti-immigrant, through this bombastic campaign, through this racist campaign, that uh, they've underestimated the, the level of support and the level of frustration and anger there is at Washington out there. And he's done very well to outmaneuver a lot of the establishment candidates. I mean, Jeb Bush has raised an absolute fortune. He's the second highest uh, amount that he that uh, was raised in the entire campaign. And he's dropped out now. And he was a year ago deemed to be their establishment favorite. So really, Trump has outmaneuvered the party elite. Uh, and only now are you seeing the likes of Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, and Mitt Romney, the 2012 nominee, coming out and being very critical of Trump. But I think you're right. I think it's, it's, it's too little too late at this stage. And what we're seeing, uh, some commentators are saying, is a profound historic split and and moment of divergence, if you like, for the for the Republican Party. It it will never be the same again. Well, I think it is because you'd seen it split in 2010 with the rise of the Tea Party and the rise of the Conservatives, and that faction is still there and very strong in Washington. Uh, you've seen the moderate uh, end of the party, the establishment end of the party, which itself has gone very far to the right from where it was, have uh, gone much more conservative. Um, that's another faction. Uh, and now you have Trump, who's, if you want to call it the celebrity faction, but what he's done is is actually take some of the Tea Party support and taken some of the moderate support and has managed to create a coalition, really, that the the party establishment just did not see that was there. And mainly on the basis that it's this very strong 
anti-Washington feeling. And it's incredible that Trump has managed to, as I said, draw in these country club Republicans as well as these blue collar Republicans into into a very strong support base. Now, if Trump has not quite made it over the line yet, it does look as if Hillary Clinton, however, on the, on the Democratic side, with victories in in places like Texas, Virginia, and and across the South, um, that she has staked her claim and and she's now unbeatable. Well, I think she had a very very good Super Tuesday, um, and you could see it. I'm, I'm down in Florida at the moment, and I was at her rally in Miami. You could see it on her face and stage. She was clearly thrilled and she worked the rope line afterwards posing for selfies with the supporters for quite some time after the rally ended she seems very happy and so she should she's won uh, seven states out of the 11 that were up for grabs but bernie sanders did pretty well too he won four so he's still in the race much like the republican candidates he's managed to hang on um he won in Colorado and um, uh, Minnesota, and he won in Oklahoma, one of the southern states, which you would have thought, given Hillary Clinton's support base amongst African-Americans and amongst minority voters, um, that she might have done better there or she may even have won that state. But uh, Sanders took it. Now, Sanders, his victory in Vermont is expected. It's his home state. He took it 86 to 14 by a huge margin. But I think the thing that thing to watch is whether... Um, he can eat into her African-American support base. And that's very, very strong. I mean, her uh, in the South, the the percentage that she won, the lowest percentage that she won was, seven, uh, was 64%, which is quite a margin uh, on her rival. So I think it shows that Bernie Sanders has a long way to go to actually try and get some of those minority voters. Uh, another thing that the Clinton campaign is quite proud of with the Super Tuesday results is the fact that Hillary Clinton is now faring better amongst white voters in some of the rural areas of Virginia, which Bernie Sanders has in the first couple of races, had done very, very well amongst white voters, and she had been sh- showing herself to be struggling amongst those. So she's won a bit of ground back with those supporters, so that bodes well for the upcoming races. So she's in a she's certainly in a very strong position to win the Democratic nomination. And of course, she she took Massachusetts, which uh, uh, is an interesting vo- uh, state, which is close to Vermont and, and might have been uh, seen as sympathetic to, to him. Uh, true. She took it by a very small margin, less than two percentage points, but it's a win nonetheless. Um, and it's a big win given uh, how New Englanders tend to go with their own and the fact that Sanders is from um, neighbouring Vermont or nearby Vermont. So she did very well to win that state. That's a, that's certainly a big win for her. And it calls uh, Bernie Sanders, um, certainly his march up around the northeast and um, will 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 really stand to her in the uh, in the later races coming up later this month. And of course, she was heavily beaten in the uh, rather smaller poll for, for Irish American uh, Democrats in in in, in Dublin. Uh, but that's hardly likely to tip the balance. How is she? Um, how is she standing in polls in head to head against uh, Trump? She does quite well against Trump. Uh, Sanders makes much of the fact that he does better against Trump. Uh, but I think a lot of the um, a lot of the Democratic primary voters, when they're asked in exit polls um, who is the most electable when it comes to the November election, most, most would say Hillary Clinton and by quite some stretch. So I think she's viewed as being uh, the strongest candidate to go forth from the Democratic Party against the Republican nominee who's now expected to be Donald Trump. So I think Democrats want to back a winner and they think the winner is Hillary Clinton. Thank you very much, Simon. 
And now to Guy Hedgeco in Madrid. In Spain, the socialists under their leader, Pedro Sanchez, have signed an agreement with the liberal Ciudadanos party, which they hope will lay the foundations for a progressive reformist government following inconclusive elections in December. But they don't have a majority. Is this seen as a viable government? Well, from their point of view, they think it lays the foundations for it, but it doesn't add up yet um, mathematically. Um, This week is particularly important um, for this pact between those two parties and for the formation, the potential formation of a new government, because Pedro Sanchez is going to face um, a congressional vote on Wednesday. um, And he will require, in order to form a government, become prime minister um, with that vote, he will require a, an absolute majority in the chamber. Now, at the moment, he doesn't have it. The Socialists and Ciudadanos together, they only uh, total 130 votes. They need 176 in favour um, in order to form a government. So you can see there's quite a shortfall. But later on in the week, on Friday, there will be a second vote if they fail in the first vote. The second vote is slightly easier for them to to form a government because they only require a simple majority. Um, That means just more votes in favour than against. So abstentions come into play a lot more there. Um, And there is the hope that that they have the hope that they can persuade one of the other big parties, either the Popular Party or uh, Podemos, the anti-austerity party, to abstain uh, on Friday. And then that would create a government. But at the moment, that is looking very difficult. There, it doesn't seem to be any possibility of a, uh, any other major party anyway uh, supporting a, a socialist government, let alone uh, electing uh, Sanchez. Is, is, is Podemos, has Podemos, for example, ruled out uh, support for a, a socialist government? Well, that's right. Yeah, I mean, in fact, both those parties, the Popular Party and Podemos, have both said uh, they, will, they would not vote um, for the socialists. So, I mean, that's something that the socialists are working on right up to the, you know, right up to the vote itself. Um, at the moment, as we speak, they're trying to persuade Podemos to change their mind. But Podemos have said that they would not want to be in a government or support a government um, that um, involves Ciudadanos, because although Ciudadanos, they describe themselves as a centrist liberal party, um, Podemos insists that they're a right-wing party, that they're basically just a, a younger version of the popular party, that is, you know, conservatives with conservative uh, economic and social policies. And so Podemos say that they are incompatible with, uh, with Ciudadanos. And the other thing that, that uh, Podemos has said is that they will only join a government or support a government, a socialist government or any other government, if there is a promise to have a referendum on the Catalan issue in Catalonia. Uh, in the next legislature. And that is just impossible at the moment for the socialists to accept, and it's impossible for for Ciudadanos to accept. So it is looking very difficult, uh, certainly to get Podemos uh, supporting this this pact between Ciudadanos and the socialists, and it looks as if the PP probably won't support it either. And would Ciudadanos have have difficulty anyway with Podemos in in, in a, a coalition? Well, I think so. I mean, they, they, they you know, in, in, some, in some ways they have a lot in common. They're two you know, new parties. Ciudadanos has been around for quite some years, but it, it started out as just a Catalan party. It only went national um, just over a year or so ago with great success. Podemos um, was only founded in 2014. Um, So both these parties have made an immediate impact. They have a young leadership. They want to shake up Spanish politics. They want to clamp down on corruption, which has been a huge problem in Spain. Um, They want to make changes to the economy. Um, And the leaders 
you know, on the face of it, they, they, they have a number of similarities. Um, you know, they're both very young. Pablo Iglesias Podemos is 37. Um, Albert Rivera of Ciudadanos is 36. Um, but that's pretty much where the similarities end. In terms of ideology, they, they come from different ends of the spectrum. Podemos is very much anti-austerity. It comes from the left. Um, Ciudadanos, um, certainly a lot of its economic policies seem to come from the right of centre, even though it, it it's insists it's, it's a centrist party. Um, and so you know, in terms of policy, they just wouldn't have a great deal uh, in common. I think it would be very difficult for them to agree, certainly in a coalition government. Um, and at the moment, uh, that neither of them seem to be very keen on on joining each other, even in a governing partnership, you know, something less formal than a coalition. And is there a prospect then of a general election, if uh, another general election, if, if these the, these issues can't be resolved? And, and how well, do the, looking... I mean, how do, do Ciudadanos and Podemos see that prospect? Would they welcome it or would they feel fear that um, the, the, the Spanish people might be um, angry with them for, for precipitating it? Well, it certainly is looking like a, a you know a very uh, possible outcome of this current deadlock. Um, I mean, the, the way the, the the process would work is that um, following Wednesday's first vote for the for Pedro Sanchez, the socialist um, who, who wants to become prime minister by the end of the week, um, that first vote triggers a deadline, or the, 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 the clock starts kicking from that uh, ticking from that first vote. And from then on, the Spanish Congress has two months in which to form a government, whether it's led by Pedro Sanchez or Prime Minister, the current Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy, or even another independent candidate. They have two months in which to do that. If at the end of those two months, which takes us up to the beginning of May, there is no uh, new government still, then the king will dissolve Congress and call new elections. And at the moment, the date that's being talked about for those new elections, if they take place, is uh, the 26th of June. That's looking like a very real possibility. And as far as how welcome that prospect is for the parties, uh, that's sort of the big question at the moment. Straight after the election, there was a feeling that Podemos really wanted to have fresh elections because they were on a, on a real upward trajectory towards the end of the election campaign. Um, they seemed to be getting a lot of uh, new support leading up in the days leading up to the December 20th election. And it was almost as if the, the election campaign was a week or two too short for, for Podemos. So there was a feeling, you know, many people thought that Podemos were actually in the, in the days and weeks after the election, they were hoping for fresh elections. Um, now, that's changed somewhat uh, in the recent weeks because th there's a feeling that um, if parties are seen to be blocking the formation of a new government, then the voters are going to start uh, punishing them. And I think Podemos has the, the concern that if it's seen as an obstacle to a new government, then the voters uh, might not uh, support them uh, as much as they did in the previous election if, if new elections are held. So that's a concern for Podemos. Ciudadanos, on the other hand, has very much played itself as the, um, the sort of statesman-like bridge between the big parties. Uh, Ciudadanos' leader, Albert Rivera, has um, reached out both to the left and the right, to the socialists and to the popular party, saying, you know, you guys need to get along. You can form a, a government or even a grand coalition together. That Those two parties together with Ciudadanos in the middle. Um, he's been playing that card, and it seems that he's been trying to um, to 
avoid fresh elections if at all possible. But having said that, there, there is a good chance that Ciudadanos could perform quite well in new elections, but they don't seem to be playing that card at the moment. They seem to be uh, at least publicly trying to um, encourage a new government. And of course, the Popular Party is in particular difficulties, isn't it? There's a whole series of graft uh, trials uh, going on at the moment. So they could, they could actually see their, their vote decline even further. Well, that's right. I mean, this is the big mystery about the polls since the election. It, they've sort of been going up and down. Um, it's been very hard to see any real pattern in the polls, who would benefit and who wouldn't benefit from new elections, because every week it seems to change. Um, now, the Popular Party has been hit very badly by those corruption scandals, particularly in Valencia, the city of Valencia and the region surrounding it, which already was sort of synonymous with uh, with graft and scandal um, prior to, the, to, uh, to, to this year, for the last two or three years, um, that region and that city have been absolutely plagued by corruption scandals. Um, and that's been a big problem for the Popular Party. But those uh, scandals have continued in the last few weeks, including uh, ones that have affected the former mayor of uh, Valencia, Rita Barbera, who's of the Popular Party, and other senior members of the Popular Party. Now, that certainly doesn't help the Popular Party. But having said that, the, the last two or three years have been very bad for the Popular Party in that sense. And yet they did still win the the general election in December. They won the most votes and they won the most seats. Now, they lost their majority, but they still came first. So the question is, how much do these uh, these corruption scandals actually affect them if they can win a general election on d despite all the scandals they've had over the last three or four years. So that may or may not be a factor. Um, but the other issue seems to be Mariano Rajoy. You know, he, he, the, the, the prime minister, leader of the popular party, he just seems to have been so sidelined by this whole process. He, does, he hasn't been active um, really in trying to, he doesn't, he hasn't looked active in trying to form a new government. Um, He's, he's looked very reactive. He's, he turned down the invitation of uh, King Felipe to try and form a government, saying he didn't have enough support. Um, now, that may have been a logical step um, on his part, but many people have seen it as political cowardice. Um, and he may not get another chance if Pedro Sanchez somehow um, is successful this week. Um, so... It's in a very difficult situation, the PP. Yeah, and uh, on, the, on the subject of awkward uh, coalition uh, building, um, can, can we just turn briefly to Catalonia, where the hard left is in, in an alliance with the Conservative uh, Party, and it, it's looking precarious, but it does seem to be advancing uh, towards Catalan independence. Well, that's right. There's this sort of strange marriage of convenience uh, formed um, following elections last autumn, which um, Catalan nationalist parties used as a plebiscite on independence. And in, in order to get a majority in the Catalan um, regional parliament, um, parties from, uh, from the, the right, conservative Catalan nationalists, had to team up with um, others from the left and even anti-capitalists. The, the CUP, the CUP, is an anti-capitalist party uh, which wants independence and which has joined this sort of uh, broad front which wants independence and they're all kind of holding each other's they're holding their their noses as they work together because the, the only thing they have in common is that they want independence from Spain so they they've decided to work together for a period of 18 months or so while they work through this what they see as a roadmap to independence they get laws in place 
for the creation of a new Catalan state. And then once those 18 months are over, they can also go their separate ways and start holding separate elections. And as they see it, um, hold the normal kind of political processes you would see in an independent state. Um, but it's going to be a, a bumpy ride for them at the moment because they disagree on so many other issues apart from uh, independence. Thank you very much, Guy. You're listening to the Irish Times. First, back again to the Brexit debate. I'm joined by a London correspondent, Dennis Staunton, and by Paul Gillespie, author of a recent book on the Brexit challenge to Ireland, and whose PhD thesis indeed involved discussion of multiple identity. Dennis, you wrote recently about two exhibitions in the Victorian Albert Museum and the Tate, which centre on the idea of identity, particularly as a relic of empire. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, well, the the uh, exhibition in the Tate is an exhibition about the British Empire. It's uh, called Artist and Empires in Tate Britain, Artist and Empire Facing Britain's Imperial Past. And it's actually the first major exhibition of art produced in response to the British Empire for about 100 years. And uh, it looks at the, in a way, it looks at the complexity of the relationship between Britain and its uh, subject peoples. Uh, in an interesting way. So, for example, there's a whole uh, room which is devoted to these uh, depictions of what the uh, the curators call transcultural cross-dressing. So you've got T. Lawrence dressed in uh, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, dressed in Arab uh, costume. You'll then have various other uh, British colonizers dressed in kind of native dress. And then you also have uh, the colonized peoples uh, dressing in some kind of version of, uh, of British imperial dress. And in a sense, this is reflecting uh, the complicated and rather ambiguous relationship that Britain had with its, uh, with its empire. And this, of course, has, uh, has, has stretched into the post-imperial age so that when Britain looks at, uh, at the legacy of empire and looks of the Commonwealth, in a way what it sees is not something shameful so much as a really rather flattering relationship. It feels that uh, it has uh, done rather well in terms of the way it ended empire. And of course, it also sees a very successful multicultural society here in Britain, which is a result of the, of the Commonwealth. The other exhibition is actually uh, the restored European galleries of the Victorian Albert Museum. And these, this uh, houses the, uh, the collection from the 17th and 18th centuries of uh, European art. And one of the striking things there is that you've got the European galleries and a floor above them you have the Britain galleries. And so there's a, a distinction here between Britain and Europe. And this uh, is something which is we're obviously familiar with uh, in the uh, in the current period, but it was also something that in the 17th and 18th centuries, people in Britain understood quite well because. England particularly did see itself as being, on the one hand, uh, connected to Europe and part of Europe, but also able to define itself uh, slightly, somewhat in opposition to it. And that's partly as a result of the fact that it had this alternative, which was the British Empire. Uh, this, again, of course, is a distinction between, say, England on the one hand, which uh, tended to see itself uh, in opposition to Europe, and Scotland, which uh, had uh, for about 300 years the Ald Alliance, which is the alliance between the Scottish and the French monarchies. And so that, again, is something that even though the Ald Alliance ended at the end of the 16th century, this sensibility of being somehow connected with France and with Europe continued in Scotland right up to this day. 
But you, you're talking in a way about the, the whole of Britain there. Um, how does that manifest itself in terms of political attitudes of individuals? I think it's, uh, manifest itself, uh, well, it manifested itself in, the, uh, in centuries past, where again, again in, rather in a similar way as it does today. If you look at the attitude, say, in the 17th and 18th centuries in England towards Europe, the elites tended to be quite integrated into Europe. They went on the Grand Tour, they, uh, they traveled a lot to Europe, they bought artworks, furniture, and all the rest uh, from Europe. Whereas those a little bit below, they tended to feel that Europe was something frightening, something uh, antagonistic. And also, uh, as economic change happened, they found themselves often on the wrong end of this uh, early globalization. And something similar happens uh, in Britain today, so that you find that, uh, generally speaking, the elites in England tend to be pro-European. And they, all go- have, they all have holiday homes in the Luberon. They do, and not only that, but they also tend to benefit from a lot of the uh, of, of the privileges of membership of the European Union uh, to do with things like travel, to do with uh, Erasmus uh, scholarships in Europe, uh, all kinds of things which tend to benefit the uh, the upper uh, middle the middle class and the upper middle class uh, more than they do the uh, say the white working class. So you see a, a change, in a, a, you know, a kind of a divergence in attitudes there. But what you also see is that if you talk to people uh, and if you look at opinion polling about Europe, you see that uh, that British people tend to be quite Eurosceptic in a cultural sense. So they're rather concerned about national identity and about sovereignty and about immigration. And, in, and that would tend to impel them towards voting to leave the European Union. But as soon as you introduce economics or national security into the conversation, then the, the mood changes and they start to decide that actually maybe they might be safer off inside. And a second part of all of this, I think, is manifested... But is that, is that yes? uh, divided between classes, if you like? Is that uh, a sort of segmented uh, attitudes or is that predominant throughout... That's actually quite remarkably widespread. There's uh, the, the most recent uh, survey from the British Attitude Survey, this uh, very, very big and long-running survey run by Professor John Curtis. It shows that this actually, these attitudes are shared not only among English people, but also among Scottish people. And so this, uh, these cultural uh, elements of Euroscepticism really do seem to be very, very widespread in the British population, much more so than... Uh, you know, than mainstream kind of political uh, Euroscepticism. And so that's why I think you, you see that the, that the Leave campaign is on its strongest territory when it's speaking to this emotional, cultural kind of nationalism or Euroscepticism, and it's on its weakest when it's uh, talking about the economics or the national security element of the whole thing. No. I think the other part where you see uh, some of this legacy of the uh, of the empire and Britain looking towards it is when you ask the lead campaigners what is the alternative to the European Union, and really the alternative is a kind of English-speaking union. It's access to a network, a global network of like-minded states. With, with essentially with Britain at the centre of it. So it is really like something like the Commonwealth 
plus a few others. It's a re- revisiting of, of Empire in, in, in a different form. Um, or a modernization, uh, an updating of it yeah, as well, um, not just nostalgia. Paul, uh, Dennis quotes a historian in, in, in his piece saying that if you look at Germany and France, they will define themselves against each other. At the same time, they will define themselves together in Europe. But that's never been so in the case of the UK or of, of the, the elites, either of the elites or the population. Um, I don't. Ne- I wouldn't say never been so, uh, much less so. And I think that shows in the Eurobarometer of research and, and in the research that Dennis is quoting from John Curtis and others. But I mean, and if you go back not only with the elites, but in more popular opinion, I mean, they had a, a German monarchy. I mean, what is the monarchy? Uh, where does that come from? The balance of power setting in, in, in Europe, the wars, the Napoleonic wars, um, they were both to assert British uh, distinctiveness, but also to create that balance of power. Uh, it seems to me, you know, you've got, uh, therefore, in a sense, that's that's asserting something European as well as something distinct. And I think there's a great ambiguity about that uh, historically, which comes through today. And perhaps you can see it. It's that distinction between the emotional and the economic is relevant, relevant also um, historically. Uh, but there's a political aspect to this that comes out, if you like, in the security uh, dimension. Uh, and it's also you know, the, the elites are well aware of this, where the question of sovereignty that, that Dennis quotes is now almost a redundant category. Uh, Dominic Grieve, the former Attorney General, asks the Foreign Office how many treaties Britain currently uh, undertakes, and it's over 14,000. What is a treaty other than, in a sense, of sharing sovereignty? Uh, And the sharing of sovereignty in practice, including at the European level, is something that the the British are deeply uh, participant in and aware of. Uh, So I, I think this great complexity and ambiguity uh, about this. Not, it's not as cut and dried as some of the uh, sovereignists uh, currently would argue. It's a very difficult argument, as we have found here, uh, to develop the idea of sharing of sovereignty as opposed to losing sovereignty. And and it's it, in, in many ways the arguments in Britain raised by the sovereignists are, are very similar to those that we heard here. Um, yes, um, that's the parliamentary, that, I mean, the, again, going back to the monarchy, the monarch in parliament is the, the font of sovereignty. The parliament then, uh, as it, it wrested power historically from the monarchy, asserted its own uh, autonomy and power. And that notion of, 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 of sovereignty is very deep-seated in, in the British political psyche. And, of course, it was reinforced by the sense of empire uh, and by the, the military security side of that state. And, you know, both in practice and certainly in theory, uh, the, 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 it, it, the, the English haven't really got over that and they're struggling it seems to me now, with a, a dual sovereignty crisis which links the future of Britain and of the UK itself uh, to the future of the UK and Europe. But Cameron seems to have found a niche, if you like, in, in Middle England, which is much more pragmatic, which is much less concerned with this, uh, with notions of sovereignty, which understands the European dimension better. Where Where is that cleavage um, in in? British society, and, and he, has he got it right? 
Um, I think he, he certainly got it. I mean, if you take the elite popular distinction that Dennis has made, uh, Cameron is very much at home, obviously, with the elite definition. He's also a pragmatic politician who's able to articulate uh, confidently uh, the rule of that elite, but the rule of that elite extends beyond the, the traditional upper class uh, and is able to mobilise uh, the more cosmopolitan middle class, uh, the more travelled, the more the, the more privileged and so on. Cameron is, is a very, you know, comfortable representative of that, of that sense of cleavage. Remember that, uh, and, and I would agree, that uh, there are winners and losers, not only through globalisation, but through Europeanisation and through European integration. And it's not only in Britain this is the case. And we're getting the articulation of this politically uh, all over Europe, in a sense. So there are common European currents uh, in Britain, even though the political culture and the historical culture is rather distinct. Uh, the sense of a common Europeanness is much less and it's you know, empirically shown to be much less by measurements such as the Eurobarometer uh, questions when they ask whether people feel both national and European. Uh, Br Britain is very, uh, very much an outlier in that respect. I think one other respect in which Britain is different is that in the popular imagination, at least, uh, unlike other European countries, Britain feels it has an alternative international route so that withdrawing from the European Union doesn't feel to many British people or to some British people, it doesn't feel like a retreat from the world. Uh, because they, they, they see uh, in their imagination that they have an alternative uh, route of having access to the world. And that is something which, in, which in, in cultural terms, many uh, English people find more interesting, more culturally diverse, and, uh, and, and, and they feel more comfortable with it. And I think, again, it's an interesting thing if you look at one contemporary uh, controversy that's been going on here, which is about the statue of Cecil Rhodes, the imperialist, uh, at, or outside Oriel College in Oxford. And some students wanted to pull this statue down, uh, or at least to have it moved. And uh, the entire British establishment, both uh, the liberal side and the conservative side, united in condemning these students in the most intemperate terms. And, as, and in part of that condemnation, uh, many of them made an argument in favor of the benign legacy of the British Empire. So I think that, uh, that there is something quite deep here in Britain, which does distinguish itself in terms of, from the rest of Europe in terms of it seeing itself as having an international alternative to the European Union. But that benign uh, legacy is not perceived in Scotland. Is that, is that essentially part of the difference? I, well, it, it, it's less so, and in, increasingly Scottish uh, identifications are are distinguishable and being distinguished from uh, English identifications, uh, notwithstanding Scotland's own participation in empire. Uh, so again, there's a complexity here. Uh, as as you know, in the post-imperial period, period in the uh, ways that since the 1980s particularly, the welfare state has, has developed, it's less of a glue uh, as, as the whole devolution settlement has applied, uh, as Scotland sees, it, it looks out towards uh, around Europe as well as to the Anglosphere that Dennis is talking about, or the Commonwealth sphere, uh, it sees increasingly distinct uh, interests, including distinct interests uh, with Ireland, uh, which is very interesting. Dennis? 
Yes, no, I think that's absolutely right. And uh, and Nicola Sturgeon this week was making uh, made a major speech about Scotland and the European Union, uh, and and making the case, the reasons why uh, Scotland wanted to remain within uh, the European Union, but also why, uh, despite the fact that uh, that a vote to leave the European Union could trigger Scottish independence sooner rather than later, that uh, that she as a Scottish nationalist wanted the United Kingdom to remain in the European Union as well as an independent Scotland, and she uh, she uh, invoked uh, the Irish position, and she said that she essentially compared the, the Scottish position to that of Ireland in wishing to have its closest neighbour also within the European Union. But I think Paul is absolutely right. Scotland does see itself both for uh, contemporary and for historical reasons as having a stronger sense of its European identity. Thank you both. Thanks to Simon Carswell, Dennis Staunton, Paul Gillespie and Guy Hedgeco, to our producer Declan Conlon and Rob O'Sullivan on sound. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. 